0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Earlier today, I came across a question, and I was supposed to choose A or B. So here's the question. If you were a teacher, would you rather teach A, fact courses, or B, courses involving theory? Well, as someone who taught for several years, I don't know that I'd want to teach a course that's nothing but facts, but I'm also not sure I'd want to teach a course that had no facts and was all theories, which probably is not what the people who developed the question would want to hear. The question, after all, is part of a test that revolutionized personality assessment in America. It's called the Myers-Briggs. And if you aren't difficult like me and you actually answer the questions, you can figure out if you're introverted or extroverted, if you rely more on thinking or feeling and so on. You can understand your personality better. At least that was the idea. The question of whether the Myers Briggs, whose full name is the Myers Briggs Type Indicator, has really told the millions of people who've taken it over the past 70 ish years anything enlightening about themselves, that's debatable. Mervais Emre is an associate professor at Oxford University and the author of the book, The Personality Brokers The Strange History of Myers Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing. Mervais, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. And I love that introduction.
0: Oh, thank you. Uh, So why, I just have to ask you, you know, why, a lot of people have heard of the Myers-Briggs. If I've ever taken it, it's far enough back that I can't remember. What about this test made you think, I know I'm going to go write a big book about how this test came to be? Well, so I took it
1: first when I was 22 years old. I had just graduated from college and I had started working as a management consultant at Bain & Company. And I took it, you know, two weeks into my job. And I remember when I got my results, I was absolutely fascinated by them. I was completely compelled by the idea that there was an instrument out there that could reveal more to me about myself than I already knew.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I was someone who, you know, I think like like many people in college and growing up had always thought that what I was, who myself was, was the sum total of what I had accomplished. And so the idea Mm -hmm. that there was something innate to my personality, there was something essential and unchanging that didn't depend on anything that I really did with my life was
0: really fascinating to me. Hmm. I should say uh, that, you know, I called it a test. A lot of people call it the Myers-Briggs test. It isn't the, the people who developed it um didn't call it a test it's really like you said it's like this personality assessment or personality indicator do you think that the word test matters like you know normally when people take something and there's you know the choices a or b they think like that's a test what do you think about this word that you know, has been rejected in terms of the Myers Briggs. Like, it, everybody may call it a test, but it's not really a test.
1: Right. So, there's kind of a funny story behind this, which is that um, in order to get access to the papers of Catherine Briggs and Isabel Briggs Myers, I actually had to go to a Myers Briggs training session, okay. which was also called a re education program. I'm putting that in very heavy quotes.
0: Wow. It was called a re education <laughs> program. It was called a re
1: education program. And the first rule that we were taught in this re education, program was that you never, under any circumstances, refer to Myers-Briggs as a test. You always call it an indicator. And you do that because they claimed a test is something that has right or wrong answers. And the whole idea behind the indicator is that it's not a, a personality assessment tool that divides people whose personalities are normal from those whose personalities are abnormal, but it's an indicator that indicates your preferences. And no one kind of preference for extroversion versus introversion or thinking versus feeling is better than any other kind of preference. So there's this real ideology of a kind of democratic understanding of type and of personality Hmm. that comes along with the Myers-Briggs. And I think all of that is baked into the idea that you are never supposed to call it a test, only an indicator.
0: I mentioned one question that's on the test. Can you think of like one or two more off the top of your head that might give people, especially who haven't taken Myers-Briggs or haven't taken it in a really long time, just to you know remind people of what kinds of questions you get asked?
1: Right. So one example might be you are planning a vacation to Disneyland. Do you plan out everything you are going to do well in advance of going on your trip? Or do you wait until you get there and just see what strikes your fancy? So that's Mm. a very typical judging versus perceiving question. You know, the judging types are the people who have a preference for sort of systematically organizing things in advance, while the perceiving types are the ones who have a preference for spontaneity and flexibility. Mm. Another question might be, if you go to a party where you don't know anybody, are you more likely to... A chat up the first person that walks along, or B, wait for somebody to talk to you. And that is an example of a kind of typical extroversion, introversion
0: question. So Myers-Briggs came on the scene in the 40s, but obviously became bigger after that. How do you think it's changed America? Right. So the, the first thing to say is just
1: to explain a little bit about why it came on the scene in the 40s. And the answer to that is because immediately after World War II, there was this real boom in the labor force and employers at that moment were really hungry for quick and easy and standardized ways to simplify hiring. So to match potential employees to the jobs that were best suited for them. And so Myers-Briggs comes onto the scene in 1943 as a tool for hiring. And then once people are already hired, as a tool for promoting, reassigning, and even firing people within large corporations.
0: When you say firing, do you mean like, I mean, could a division head think, well, in this division, this is sales. It's very important that people be extroverted. Your Myers-Briggs is showing you're introverted. That's it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you have records from the early 40s where you
1: see precisely that happening. I think your example about sales is really apt because it was also coming onto the scene at a moment where so much more of the work that was being done was people-based. It was sales work. It was managerial work. um, And there weren't sort of easy metrics for figuring out who was good at managing people. Um, And so personality became one of those kind of indescribable or ineffable qualities that people were looking for ways to talk about in a consistent and standardized fashion. So, you know, that's, I think, why it comes about or why it really, you know, starts in the 40s. But then, you know, I think it it flourishes on the backs of major institutions that are interested in figuring out how to sort people. So universities are among the first institutions to really take up Myers-Briggs and try to figure out if they can use it the same way that they're using the SAT to screen candidates. Hmm. The military is one of its earliest adopters, and even during World War II, the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA, is using Myers-Briggs to match spies to the covert missions that they believe will be best suited to their personalities. And so I think you know one of the ways in which it's really changed America and the world more generally is that it was really a forerunner to the idea that there were just certain jobs, certain professions, certain niches of society that some people were better suited to inhabiting and that to inhabit those jobs or niches was something that people should do freely and gladly. So if your personality was suited to a particular job, you should do that job not just with satisfaction but with with a sense of self-actualization. You should be able to root mm. your sense of self in that job. So in that sense, I think it was really kind of foreshadowing a lot of these mantras we have today, like love what you do, which encourage people to believe that work and um that, that work and these kinds of institutional settings are where they should they should find and develop their senses of self.
0: When we come back, more with Mervé Emre on how a personality assessment changed our view of ourselves and what we're destined for in life. Plus the real and really strange story of the women who created it. Remember, you can sign up for our newsletter at our website, innovationhub.org. You can find out more about what's coming up on the show, and you'll also get our top reads for the week. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. In the late 1950s, ETS, the Educational Testing Service, which you may have heard of because they're the folks who administer the SAT. Well, in the 1950s and the early 1960s, they were very interested in having something else that could be administered to students. But what they had in mind wouldn't test what you'd learned in school or how good you were at math or language. It would assess your personality. It was called the Myers-Briggs, and the idea was that it was an indicator. It indicated your personality. So ETS started testing it out on high school and college kids. Here, once again, is scholar Mervé Emre. And they started really trying to kind of build up a database um, that they could draw on
1: to validate the indicator. And they just couldn't do it. So most of the really basic assumptions about the indicator that, you know, people were kind of cleanly divided into these two different, you know, dichotomies of personality, extrovert or introvert thinking or feeling, uh, that just didn't hold any water.
0: Emery is an associate professor at Oxford University, and she's the author of the book, The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing.
1: And, you know, they also found, and this continues to be the case, that the indicator's test-retest reliability was low, so that if you took it one time and then you took it again either three weeks or three years later, you – very often would not get the same result as the first time. The
0: ETS may not have loved the Myers-Briggs, but the personality indicator went on to become incredibly popular by dividing people into categories, extroverted versus introverted, thinking versus feeling, judging versus perceiving, and sensing versus intuition. Emory argues that this sort of categorization is seductive, the notion that you can know more about yourself simply by answering a series of questions about personal preferences, Questions, for example, about whether you plan ahead when you take vacations or whether you like more spontaneity. When Emory started to wonder where the Myers-Briggs came from, what the story was behind the two folks who developed it, a couple of things intrigued her. The first was this. The developers of this assessment that had been embraced by corporate America, by the military, they weren't who you might imagine. Most of the
1: time when we see any kind of Uh, instrument with last names attached to it, we assume that it's two men who lent their names to it. And so discovering that it was two women made me really, really curious, Uh, and two women with no training in psychology or sociology. So it made me really, really curious to discover how they had designed it and how it had become the most popular personality assessment in the world.
0: The second bit of intrigue was that the story of these two women, Catherine Cook Briggs and Isabel briggs Myers was about well-kept secrets at some point in the 70s,
1: Isabel did compare the answer keys to the to the Myers-briggs to the nuclear codes, and she wouldn't oh, share okay. them well, she wouldn't then... share them with anybody because she said you know it would you know if they fell into the wrong hands, it would be like the nuclear codes fell into the wrong hands.
0: It was unusually hard for Emory to access the papers and the records of Briggs and Myers, neither of whom were professionally trained as psychologists or sociologists. But they were both mothers, and they felt that trying to figure out what type of person someone was, that felt intrinsically logical.
1: You know, I think anybody who has more than one child knows that, you know, they really are very, very different from the beginning. And it's so hard not to engage in trying to explain that difference and trying to think about what it might mean for the rest of their lives. And so I think, you know, they were producing knowledge about psychology and personality. They just weren't producing it in a way that's, you know, recognizable to us today as being
0: valid. The basis, though, the inspiration for their work was a tremendously famous man, a celebrated psychiatrist from Switzerland named Carl Jung. And Jung's life became strangely, very strangely, bound up in theirs. Here's how that happened.
1: So, you know, Catherine Briggs, the mother of the pair... Is born in 1875, goes to college at Michigan Agricultural College uh, at the age of 14, and she graduates at the absolute top of her class and marries, of course, the man who graduated second. Um, And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they Sounds like a good pair. Yeah, right. So they move to Washington, D.C., and she has three children, two of whom die in early infancy. And she becomes very interested in the idea of how she can not just, you know, protect her children from death, but make sure that in their life they manage to become the best possible versions of themselves. And so she opens what she calls a cosmic laboratory of baby training in the living room of her house in Washington, D.C. And she starts typing her daughter, Isabel, and, you know, the children from around the neighborhood whose parents bring them to her to her house.
0: When you say typing, you mean like figuring out their personality type?
1: Yeah, figuring out their personality yeah, type. Okay, and actually okay. the the really the earliest version of the myers-briggs questionnaire is a questionnaire that she devises and gives to the parents of these children that is called the obedience curiosity child questionnaire and it's trying to determine whether your child is an obedient child or a curious child so that's her original typological system or those two types So, you know, she raises her daughter under this system. Her daughter, Isabel, is this kind of exceptional young woman. She goes off to Swarthmore at the age of 16. And Catherine falls into this really, really deep depression. Isabel's personality has been Catherine's life's work, and she doesn't know what to do with herself. And in 1923, she reads a review in The New Republic of Carl Jung's book, Psychological Types. And she thinks, well, this actually sounds quite similar to the typological system that I was working with, so I should read it. And she Mm -hmm. reads it, and she becomes absolutely obsessed with it. So from 1923 to 1928, every day she copies sentences of it out on these little three-by-five index cards. And she starts writing to Young, asking him to clarify moments in the book that she doesn't understand. And that kind of intellectual obsession slowly takes on a, a darker cast. So she becomes you know she starts to fantasize about him she starts to write songs about him she starts to write erotic fan fiction about him wow and and eventually she starts stylizing herself as his disciple and starts trying to take on patients in her neighborhood uh, very very sort of sick teenage girls and boys who really need to be under a physician's care but she believes that through young she can she can help heal their souls mm. So, you know, eventually when Isabel sort of takes over the type system in the 40s, she takes the the Jungian language of type that she learned from her mother, and she puts it to use in this questionnaire that basically, you know, once you answer the questions, then indicates whether you are, you know, extroverted or introverted sensing or intuitive thinking or feeling, which are Young's original categories of personality. And then she adds judging and perceiving to that. And one just kind of interesting, you know, thing to note is that her mother who's taught her this language of type is deeply disapproving of her standardizing it in a questionnaire. She thinks that in order to really understand Jungian typology, you have to devote your entire life to it. And so she's quite irritated that her daughter has taken what she spent the entire second half of her life learning and has devoted herself to in this kind of religious, obsessive way Mm. and has made it into this product that, you know, eventually anybody can have access to.
0: When would you say that Myers-Briggs became something that you know, lots of people in America knew about. Like, when did it achieve fame? It's it's really in the eighties, the late eighties, that it really? that okay. it, yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: It's it's a recent phenomenon compared to when it was uh, actually
0: designed. Is there a is there a curve on the Myers Briggs? Like, there was a moment when it was really popular. when I mean, you mentioned the military and and employers. Is that still all true or, you know, did at some point in the last few decades it it start to sort of wane in terms of its importance and how often it was administered?
1: You know, I I don't think it's waned in society more generally. So I think, in, you know, employers continue to use it. The, the The Department of Defense continues to use it. College counselors continue to use it. The church continues to use it. You know, it certainly hasn't waned in popularity, but I think a test like the big five, for instance, has definitely replaced it as a more valid or more reliable personality test. But I just don't see the, the Myers-Briggs type indicator going away anytime soon. And that language of type, that language of self that it offers is just so immensely clarifying and gives people a way to make sense of the absolute messiness of life in ways that make them feel both both seen and also make them feel like they belong to something greater than themselves. So you know, I think the truth of the indicator is that it's ideology about self and social belonging is so much more powerful than anything that, you know, scientific validity or reliability
0: could, could you know, could dispel. Finally, do you see the influence of the Myers-Briggs in larger ways in society? I mean, it could be anything from like the Cosmo quiz, right? Like, what kind of friend are you? What kind of girlfriend are you? There's BuzzFeed quiz. I mean, you know, this idea that you could answer some questions with, with a few different options, and know something additional about yourself that maybe you didn't know before. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just wonder if you think that's part of the sort of legacy of Myers-Briggs.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the BuzzFeed quiz is sort of the most the most obvious legacy. Um, but the BuzzFeed quiz I like to think of as being a little bit ironizing, you know, because the BuzzFeed quiz is often... Positing these connections between things that are not in any way related, right? So like, what does your favorite cocktail tell you about what kind of Taylor Swift song you'll be? I mean, that's just so, <laughs> it's just so absurd that you have to think that they're sort of poking fun at or they're parodying the way that Myers-Briggs takes very seriously the connections between, you know, like the question that you cited in your introduction, like, do you like to teach mm-hmm. courses involving factor theory, fact versus right. theory, the way it takes very seriously linking those kinds of un sustainable questions to these like larger observations about ourselves so you know I, I think the BuzzFeed quiz is actually quite canny the way that it does it um, <laughs> you know when I was at the when I was at the myers-briggs re-education program that I had to go to um, <laughs> the the two areas where it has an influence that I found quite fascinating are one in in culture so I was told there that so many sitcom writers use myers-briggs to create sort of you know oppositional characters and the example that they gave was the X-Files having Mulder and Scully be these two kind of diametrically opposed S and N, T and F pairs, the thinking versus the feeling, the sensing versus mm-hmm. the intuitive type. So I think you really see it in in cultural representations, particularly in shows where you're supposed to have this, you know, like Friends, for instance, where like this, this limited cast of characters is supposed to stand in right. for like all of human society. Everybody, so you, right. you see it there. And then the last place is in online dating. I learned at the training that, I don't remember if it was eHarmony or Match.com, but one of them approached Myers-Briggs very early on to see if they could use the MBTI intellectual property for their algorithms. And they were told that they couldn't. But certainly dating sites use sort of similar kind of typological thinking to figure out how to match people. And I don't think it's an accident that very often on people's online dating sites, you'll see them say like, oh, I'm an ENTJ or I'm an ISFP <laughs> or whatever. And, you know, I think that's part of the fantasy I was talking talking about earlier, that like revealing, like speaking those four letters, it can actually like attract a person who like sees something in you that's, you know, special, but also feels
0: familiar. Mervey Emre is an associate professor at Oxford University. She's the author of the book, The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing. Mervé, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you for having me. We mentioned earlier that the Myers-Briggs was heavily influenced by Carl Jung's work, Psychological Types. Well, we've got that text for you on our website if you want to dive even deeper into personality analysis. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Salinger, associate producer Asil Kibby, and engineer Doug Schuckerts. We also had production help from Nadia Lewis. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. PRI Public Radio International.